Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be my friend, uh, Dr. Ben Heigerkin, who recently wrote a work called Salvation Through Temptation, Maximus the Confessor, and Thomas Aquinas on Christ's Victory Over the Devil. Uh, Dr. Heigerkin and I went to Princeton Seminary together, um, and now we're both uh, teaching in different uh, seminaries ourselves. Uh, Dr. Heigerkin is at St. Paul Seminary in the Twin Cities, um, so it was great to get to catch up with him and hear about his uh, research that came out of his doctoral program. Um, and in our conversation, we discuss mostly Maximus the Confessor's uh, position on uh, the, the temptation of Christ and how exactly Christ is tempted by the devil and what that means. Uh, but Dr. Heigerkin uh, also mentions a, an interesting uh, phrase. He talks about the incarnational logic of Christ uh, coming to earth. And he says that you can overcome, overcome something by undergoing it, subverting it. So we talk a little bit about that. Uh, Dr. Heigerkin also talks about emergent complexity um, and his sort of journey th with that concept. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff in here that's more than just his book uh, with Catholic University Press, uh, but, but I do highly recommend uh, that book in addition to the conversation. I would also like to mention that we had two uh, very nice comments this week from two separate guests. One, uh, William Varley has said, uh, as a missionary Nazarene Anglican, um, by background, I'm studying philosophy, and I can safely say this is my favorite podcast spelled with a British spelling. Uh, thank you so much. And we also had a nice comment uh, from Meg Elizabeth who said, thank you so much for this podcast. This was exactly what I've been searching for. I appreciate the denominational perspectives and your engaging dis discussions. I'm on episode 22, and I can't, can't stop listening. Um, so it's nice to hear that some people are going back through the catalog and learning something from our conversations there. Uh, we did have a less than, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, um, complimentary uh, comment uh, on uh, on iTunes. Someone said that uh, we give uh, Eusebius of Caesarea a run for his money in our uh, loquacity. Um, so apparently we talk a lot in the early podcasts, uh, but uh, some are finding them enjoyable. So um, yeah, if you, uh, if you have any comment, if you've appreciated the podcast, uh, we do love hearing from listeners and love to engage with listeners. So please Please do write us on our Facebook page, uh, leave a comment, rate us and review us on iTunes, even if you feel the need to tell us that we talk too much. Um, although we have sort of changed formats a little bit, doing more interviews uh, recently. Uh, so yeah, so we appreciate hearing from you all, and I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. We are working on a few other uh, interviews that are will be upcoming. Jacob Wood wrote on nature, grace, Aquinas, and Henri de Lubac. So we'll think a little. We'll get to talk a little bit about race. So small theology. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that'll be a really good conversation. I also hope to have, uh, Dr. Drew Johnson on who just wrote a book called biblical philosophy. So we do have a lot, uh, upcoming on the podcast. We appreciate your pa patience. Um, as I try to get, uh, I'm the only one doing these interviews now. And so it takes me a little while to get them out. Uh, but I do try to get it out as quick as I can. So thanks for listening. And without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Ben Heigerkin. <laughs> so I'm here with longtime friend uh, Ben Heigerkin, uh, who is uh, just recently wrote a book, Salvation Through Temptation, Maximus the Confessor, and Thomas Aquinas on Christ's Victory Over the Devil. Um, like many uh, books that I discuss on this podcast, short titles, right? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and Dr. Heigerkin uh, teaches American Church History at St. Paul Seminary. 
And uh, he and I both went to Princeton Seminary. Um, and little did we know what kinds of things that we would write about for our doctoral dissertations at that time. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Um, I'm not sure that I knew that I was even going to be writing one when I was there, but uh, <laughs> here we are. So welcome, Ben. Yes. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, uh, I've, as I normally do, I've sent some questions to Ben beforehand, so we're going to kind of work through those. Um, and I thought I would start off in a little bit of a uh, maybe odd place, uh, but, uh, you know, I guess we could say serendipitously. Uh, my nephew asked me on Sunday, he was listening to, uh, I, it turns out it's the Avid Brothers. Uh, so we were listening to the Avid Brothers. Um, I think I know what song that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think my sister says it's Satan Pulls the Strings is the uh, is the song. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so my nephew says, he's, he's six, and he says, uh, Uncle Chad, why does this song say the devil is in my head? Um, what does that mean? Is the devil in my head? Uh, and so I had to think about this for a minute and, uh, call upon my CPE training, my clinical pastoral education training. And, uh, and, uh, I, I asked him, what does he think it means? And we went through some different things and, uh, but I thought I would start there for Ben because this is an important departure for Maximus and Aquinas as they think through what it means for Christ to save humanity. So what exactly is that humanity that Christ is saving? Um, and how is he combining, you know, how does he come into the human uh, and, and, and redeem it? Uh, so, Ben, how would Maximus yes. the Confessor and or Thomas Aquinas respond to such a question? <laughs> well, first of all, you have a precocious six-year-old nephew. Um, I have a seven-year-old son, and I've sort of avoided demon talk with him by and large. Though a couple times I have sort of like hinted at it with him and like, there's a bad guy out there. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. Uh, so a six-year-old. Wow. Yeah, that's a good question from a six-year-old. Um, yeah, I mean, the heart of the book is in its own way is, is, as you've noted there in your own way, at least a reflection on, uh, Hebrews 4.15, um, mm. right. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been similarly tested like us in every way yet without sin. Um, something like that, depending on your translation. Right. Um, and the difficulty here, right, with this devil stuff, um, well, the Gospels have very clear indications that one of the things that's doing the tempting of Jesus is the devil. Um, and then the question becomes, well, if Jesus has been tempted like us, doesn't that mean that the devil's the one doing the tempting in our case as well, right? Uh -huh. Um and it's a difficult question to answer how how much power, so to speak, um, Christians have assigned to the devil in these affairs. Um, and Maximus, for in his trajectory, um, tends to give the devil, I suppose you'd say, give, acknowledge would probably be the best word, uh, for the devil, a, a pretty significant role uh, for the devil in human temptation. In fact, I'm arguing um, in the book uh, 
between sort of more Western readings of Maximus and what I take to be a more natural kind of ascetic Greek uh, trajectory for thinking about his uh, reflection on temptation and sin. Um, mm. In re some recent studies of Maximus, there's been a tendency to try to uh, favorably compare uh, Maximus with Augustine. On uh, so to say, for instance, that uh, Augustine and Maximus, some of these Western authors have been arguing, they they think quite similarly on these issues of t temptation and anthropology and the ways that human beings are broken by sin. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, right the concupiscence sort of language in Augustine right. that turns into. In the later Latin tradition, it's called fo the fomes peccati, the tinder of sin, is what I like to translate that as. Um, and those Western uh, in interpretations tend to downplay the de devil in all of that. But Maximus wants to say, no, no, no. I mean, at least all of the his trajectory, his everything that precedes him, that I found at least, wants to play up that mm -hmm. connection between human temptation and human sin. And what's at the heart of that at the end of the day is Maximus's intuition that the human person is still fundamentally good. And, and that's the thing that is sometimes the hardest to see when we're thinking in the West about Augustine and even the later Latin tradition sometimes is pretty pessimistic about what yeah. human beings are um yeah. to say that we are broken is pretty is as far as sometimes it seems we are able to get right. um but maximus is really trying to defend the human person and say no the human person is still fundamentally good and even naturally even in their fallen condition naturally inclined toward god mm -hmm. and that's yeah that's a a unique thing like we don't hear that i don't think we hear it as often as we should in the yeah. west <laughs> yeah but he seems to he seems to indicate uh at least as i understand it from your reading that that but there's also like you know the devil can sort of present images to us and has a very sort of active role um and now one of the other questions that i have is about this difference between interior and exterior as we tend to conceive it in the west and within and without which is uh how you sort of describe maximus so maybe we could go there like is yeah, the you absolutely. know is the devil tempting us within and what yeah. does that mean so is the devil kind of how does you know inside it's, of us it's a, yeah. yeah it's a like on the one hand you're right i, I definitely see maximus having that uh, wanting to uh, reco recover or uh, emphasize uh, the goodness um, of humanity and not uh, not just sort of see this uh, brokenness all the way down, all the way through, um, so where we're totally lost um, and totally without any kind of uh, divine connection. Um, so, you know, yeah, maybe maybe go there. So what, yeah. is, it, what is it like? So, um, again, in the West, and I'll use Aquinas as the example here, um, Though he's again preceded by others like uh, the uh, Peter Lombard is an important predecessor in this regard. They uh, he was Saint uh, Saint Victor as well, um, but all of these folks are, um, especially in their Christological thinking, 
They want to be able to say, here's the stuff that Jesus was in control of as a, as a deified, you know, right, hypostatically united person to the, the, hum the humanity uh, that he had. Um, and that they want to say that if Christ was tempted, it was none of that interior space within him that was doing the tempting because then it's like Christ is like split in two. Like he's, right. um, if we want to use like a early Christological analogy, you'd say maybe something like a Nestorianism would mm. sort of prevail if we were to say that like Christ is at conflict with himself and, uh, and, uh, you know, into the 20th century, like there've been figures like, you know, even Karl Barth, comes pretty close to saying things like that in the 20th century that, but he's trying to preserve that affirmation of Hebrews four fifteen that Jesus was yeah. tempted like us in every way. Well, we're tempted from, from ourselves, he was says. And so therefore Jesus was tempted from himself too. Right. Yeah. But the, the risk there is that Christ is not sort of, uh, the seams are starting to fray. <laughs> right, right. So, right. um, but, but for someone like Aquinas, um, and Hugh and Peter, uh, those folks are insistent that there is an interior space that's uh, free from temptation for Christ. Um, and that the exterior temptation that he experiences then is that from with, you know, without, right? It's, it's not him. Right. What's doing the yeah. tempting is something else. It's the devil usually. Uh, and, yeah, in most cases, it actually ends up ultimately being traced back to the devil, even when it's coming from other human beings um, for right. some of those authors. Now, that, you know, and for someone like Aquinas, he says pretty explicitly that that temptation from outside, exterior temptation, means that Jesus had the ability to, you know, he, he could not be like, uh, physically accosted by the devil. Um, uh, even though Aquinas at one point does say that perhaps the devil might have carried Jesus around in his temptations. Um, he did that by his own volition. Right? Uh -huh. <laughs> Jesus allowed himself to be carried in those instances. And so there's definitely no insinuation for Aquinas of the devil into Christ's mind, right? Yeah. That the devil never does anything to Christ's headspace. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So that's what that means for, for Aquinas, for the temptation of Christ to be exterior. Um, yeah. For Maximus, he's allows the devil, so to speak, farther into Jesus. Yeah. Um, he allows, for instance, that uh, human affectivity is sort of a contested battleground, even for Christ in this life uh, because for Maximus, again, the passions are maybe emotions, you would say something loosely right. equivalent to that, depending on your audience. <laughs> I don't know how technical to get, but they, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, our emotionality um, is a source of sometimes discernment for us, right. As human beings, uh -huh. we have to figure out, I have a, I have a feeling or a, a sensation and, and what do I do with it? Um, yeah. And for Maximus, he's going to say that if there's really something 
that is wrong, so to speak, in any of those desires or temptations, um, that it it, tra- it really can be traced back to the devil. That, that the devil right. can work inside of us to an extent um, in those thoughts, those feelings, those emotions, um, and because he also wants to maintain con- the consistency with Hebrews four fifteen. He's willing to say that this same kind of thing is what happens to Jesus. Um, yeah. That Jesus has this interior experience of the devil kind of working on his head. Um, yeah. And so that the the moral discernment that Christ has to go through is quite similar, I would argue, <laughs> and I do uh-huh. argue, yeah. uh, to that experienced even by other um so to speak, fallen human beings. Right. Well, and I think that's part of what you find to be sort of compelling, as I understand it, in Maximus's uh, presentation, such that, you know, this is not foreign to Christ, so that we have not only, well, and as you'll, as you also argue, we have not only an exemplar, um, that is, we have someone not only who can sympathize uh, with our pain, with our struggle, um, even our struggle with the devil, um, and in, a, in an almost, we might say, more, more interior space, like, so, not, not only can Christ identify with that, but actually his victory over that um, also empowers us. So uh, as I understand it, this is, you know, there's, this is actually something to, to um, rejoice in almost um, yeah. as like, okay. So, yeah, so yeah. like at first, it, at first it feels scary. Uh, well, wait a minute. If, if the devil could get that close, I don't like that. Uh, but then at the same time it's saying, well, yeah, but actually that's part of the power of it uh, because Christ actually redeems that transforms that. Um, and, and offers us not only someone who can understand and sympathize, but someone who can transform it. Is that right? Right, right. Who actually, and, and, and this is the, the sneaky part, right? That um, incarnational logic is weird logic, right? It's a, it's a logic where you, you overcome something by going under it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like you, you beat it by submitting yourself to it. And, yeah. and that, it's such a backwards way for us when we think about power, right? In American discourse, even especially I suppose today, it's backwards, right? I mean, we are, we, we think of power differently and Christ Christ says, no, I overcome it by allowing it, um, by allowing myself to undergo it. Uh-huh. And the very fact of Christ's being confronted by the devil is the moment in which he defeats him, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that becomes the moment in which other human beings then participate in their own temptations when they also overcome their temptations, right? So it's yeah. almost sacramental in that sense that Christ because he has experienced those temptations, other people, when they are confronted with their own temptations, Maximus would say still demonically, so to speak, right? That they, that they participate in that same central combat that Christ engaged with in his own human lifetime. And Christ was the first and only to overcome those temptations perfectly and thereby like cast b- bind up the strong man 
so to speak, yeah. right? That it, it, to use another sort of New Testament image there, right? That is, it is indeed a, an empowering thing when we finally, when we do realize exactly what uh, Maximus is uh, really up to in this yeah. claim. Yeah, I guess we could refer to Romans here, right? Uh, Romans 5. So all were dead in uh, Adam and all were made alive in Christ, right? So this is part of that uh, living um, and, and participating, right? So one of the words used there is, is participation, which is something uh, that that uh, I never really had a full grasp on metaphysically um, in most of my Protestant theological education. Uh, but spending time with a, a good Jesuit uh, and, uh, and, and Augustinian uh, – you know, he sort of recovered that notion of participation. So we're able to participate um, in Christ's overcoming um, through his sharing uh, in our humanity. We have a share in his victory. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I can make an apology there, too, for all of my uh, Protestant friends. I, I understand that participation <laughs> language is not always uh, the most comfortable there, Uh Nevertheless, I, I do think it is the sort of natural language that someone like Maximus is speaking in an instance yeah. like this. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, let's see. So <laughs> uh, let's see. So we talked a little bit about within without. Um, what, well, I'll go. Yeah. So um, maybe uh, – well, even, even I guess in some ways uh, – covered number four, but, um, was this more than exemplary Maximus? So, you know, we talked a little bit of participation, um, in that grace. Yeah. I mean, one thing that Maximus, uh, talks about you, you, you sort of mention it, uh, briefly, but like, I, you know, I sort of wanted Maximus to find a way to talk about, uh, grace. Um, and, uh, you know, because I'm a thoroughgoing Protestant, Augustinian, you know, whatever in the Western tradition, he doesn't quite use that, but he does mention sacramental. You do, you do talk about, uh, the place of the liturgy and, and actually one interesting thing that I had never really conceived of in quite these terms, uh, was sort of the, um, within the, uh, the moment of the Eucharist, you sort of talk about as almost an oasis or, uh, you know, it's true sanctuary. Um, and, and we're truly, you know, protected and, uh, truly, um, uh, free from temptation from the moment, um, when one receives, uh, and, and I think that's a beautiful image. Like, why do we come, uh, why do we come to, to the liturgy while well, we come to, uh, escape, um, and yeah. find solace and defense. Yeah. Absolutely. So maybe speak a little bit about, you know, how yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, Maximus. So here too, right. Maximus is uh, doing some things that again, are not very familiar in much of the West's discourse on grace. One of the most, um, I found most profound and most important claims that Maximus makes uh, in this regard is the idea, for instance, that virtue is natural. Mm. Not even like, so in other words, he's using the word nature in a way that seems again, from like an Augustinian kind of concupiscence direction, like almost completely backwards. Right. <laughs> he would say that like Augustine would say like virtue is like, it's, it's a very hard thing to attain. It's not something that comes to us naturally. <laughs> According, right. Right, right. Like Augustine By would nature, say that's not yeah, natural. No. No. <laughs> um, yeah. But Maximus is insistent that <clears throat> if we really do recognize who we are and what we are, 
um, that nature is, again, oriented toward the divine. And yeah. that um, in, in the, when it comes to right action, that in a sense, God always has given us what we need in order to overcome, right? So, so in that sense, like grace is part of nature almost for the way that Maximus is thinking about this, right? Yeah. Like it's not Pelagian, right? I mean, I'll <laughs> use the word, you know, I'll get out in front of that a little bit, right? Like he recognized, but grace is pervasive. Grace, of his, grace is everywhere yeah. for Maximus. And, and his, again, his fundamental intuition here is to make sure that God's good creation remains on God's side, uh-huh. right? That God is not going to create something that is indifferent toward the divine. Mm-hmm. And by, by calling virtue natural, he's really trying to say that, well, we are still created in God's image and likeness. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it has some weird consequences for the way that he ends up talking about grace. <laughs> um, grace is, but grace is pervasive. Grace is everywhere. It doesn't make it less real uh, or necessary. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's in our bones though. It's in the air we breathe. Um, I don't want to overplay that too much, I guess, but that's, that's my defense at least for the way that he approaches these issues. Yeah. The, the sacraments absolutely are a, a necessary essential part uh, baptism uh, for sure. Um, he's, he connects, you know, for some of the early, earliest Christian literature, I'm pretty convinced that baptism was always conceived of as a, a an exorcism, right? Mm. First and foremost, um, so like even at Qumran, for instance, I, I, even in the pre-Christian era, baptism, the baptismal r- rituals of Qumran, I think are primarily in terms of an exorcism. Um, and I think the Christian, early Christian tradition also has that. Um, so there, yeah, there's like a, a power that's being conveyed. It transfers an individual from the powers of darkness to the powers of light. Yeah. Um, and there's grace there, right? That is grace. Um, that is uh, also, I've, I'm going to fall back on my word participation again, right? <laughs> In Christ's victory. Uh, when when an individual participates in those things, but also in uh, not just sacraments, but also in eschesis, right? In uh, mm-hmm. undertaking the moral struggle as well. Uh, the, the disciplining of the body, I guess, um, is a way for us to also participate in uh, the final victories that Christ also accomplished in his own human existence. Very good. All right. Well, uh, here, here comes our uh, sort of change of pace question. Uh, and so one question we've been starting to ask on the podcast uh, is, uh, what is one thing that you believed to be true or possibly false 
uh, but have changed your mind on and what caused you to change your mind on this. And so I always say this could have come in the course of writing this book or if you yeah. fe you know feel like you want to go something bigger uh, or something outside of academics altogether. Uh, but, but I always think it's an interesting window into even, you know, just the process of life, uh, but especially academic research. Oftentimes we change our minds. I know I've changed mine multiple times. The older I get, the more I think like, man, what was I doing back then? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I'll open yeah, that I, up. Yeah, I love uh, it. Here. You know, I love the question. And I'll try to do uh, uh, one that is at least tangentially related to the, the, the book because um, – this will get us kind of into the broader issues about like why talk about the devil uh -huh. at all like because you know i've never seen him <laughs> you know and <laughs> like it's uh at the same time you know like there's a, a lot of stuff out there today that is like fascinated with uh the demonic there's mm -hmm. um shows out there supernatural my students come to me and say like yeah like I'm in this class because like, you know, there's all these really cool shows about angels and demons out there right now. And, you know, people are really fascinated with the idea of a devil. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and there's even like, I suppose uh, some research is indicating, you know, there's a pretty significant rise in things like witchcraft these days. Like people are really interested mm -hmm. in not necessarily because of the devil. Usually it's because of feminist interest, right? It seems to me at least that witchcraft is often associated with uh, sort of bodily autonomy for women, but um, they, uh, there's there's still this kind of curiosity around yeah. the spiritual, right? Around these spiritual phenomena um, that we don't, we can't get rid of it. Like it just keeps coming back. Um, yeah. So this is a long way around this, but, um, one of the things that uh, back at Princeton, um, you know, I took some classes with um, Wenzel van Hastien uh, and, uh, oh, shoot, uh, was it Gordon? Um, oh, my gosh. Am I going to blank on his name? Uh, anyway. Graham. Yeah. Gordon Graham. Yeah, yeah, Gordon Graham. That's it. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in some of that material, right, they're very scientifically – engaged individuals like very much sort of attuned to and and you know deep thinking minds on issues of like evolution and um what it means to be human uh, in a scientific w mindset today um and in a lot of that the, that coursework i remember thinking uh, being more or less convinced at the time uh that um, emergent complexity was uh, a sufficient understanding of the human soul, essentially, mm -hmm. that um, that we, in fact, don't need to talk about souls at all, uh, right? That there's these um, attempts to try to overcome these body-mind uh, dualisms of the past uh, to try to assert, right, the, the unified singularity of the human person. And I mean, at the, by the end of my time at seminary, I was pretty much at a place where I was comfortable saying, yeah, we don't need to talk about souls anymore. Uh, uh -huh. We can just talk about the emergently complex be, uh, material being uh, that humans are. Um, uh -huh. And uh, that was a position that uh, is connected then to the stuff around spirits and demons because like well if you don't need human souls why do you need 
like what what even would be a non-material spirit like yeah. <laughs> i don't even know what such a thing w would be anymore <laughs> if we're saying that like consciousness is now really like actually just a function of matter then like there's no such thing as a, a spirit or an angel or you know or a demon then um yeah so i how did i get i mean my journey away from emergent complexity uh, <laughs> has been one that um, I think it, it just to me it feels like the emperor has no clothes uh, on uh, on emergent complexity. Like it's a, a fun word game that they come up with to say, like, well, there are these emergently complex properties that like material organisms have, like consciousness, right? But so, you know, consciousness now is a function of atoms. Like, so atoms have yeah. the property of consciousness. I, I, I'm really, I have a hard time understanding exactly how you think like carbon, yeah. the atom of carbon actually is supposed to be, have the property of consciousness. Because right. I mean, if, if it's, if atoms are all there is, you know, like, we've created these verbal entities that we're saying don't really have an ontological basis, but I don't understand what that would be like, what that means anymore. So, you right. know, the, the consciousness of, of this carbon thing is what I, I, I mean, I don't see how it's really different from just saying soul still and meaning it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know like why we can't just mean it. I, I understand that there's problems around like, how immaterial substances can move material bodies, blah, blah, blah. I, I understand. Okay, okay, it's tough. Nevertheless, um, I, I just don't think we can get away from soul discourse um, yeah. anymore. I think we need to to be willing to, to say soul and mean soul um, yeah. because, um, yeah, I mean, the properties that we have have to be traced back to something real. Um about us and i uh, maybe maybe you emergent complexity people in the audience can clarify my errors on this issue but um, I, I don't know who they would be precisely i don't know that much about the emergent yeah. complexity explanation for soul talk uh yeah. i the only i mean i i've you know i've heard sometimes sometimes i will use the phrase perhaps haphazardly uh that language sometimes seems like an emergent phenomena. It is not something that is planned, uh, but is something that we, you know, is clearly complex. Um, yeah. And, you know, cause well, I always use it when I'm explaining to my students why there's a deponent um, and, and students hate the deponent. Uh, and they're like, why would anyone create a language with a deponent? And I have to say, well, <laughs> Other than Tolkien, no one creates languages, um, and it so, just happens yeah, that's, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, um, there you yeah, go. I mean, yeah, whatever. Fun. So it, it's it in its own way, though. What I just said is it's is also sort of an apology for um, the traditions uh, thought about non-material spirit as well, right? To mm -hmm. say that well, there is. Um, there's really something to be said about the way it, it the tradition has thought about um, beings that 
are not um, connected to to matter. Um, yeah, and that there, there's a there's a real need, I think, at a certain level, to think about and talk about. I, I think we experience it even existentially again in modern uh, this modern sort of uh, fascination with the spiritual. Yeah, it just you know it comes up. It's natural, uh, so to speak. Natural religion has it all over, right? Animism, like all, we're always fascinated and looking for spirits in the world around us, and it, it the it, just at the anthropological level, it's just something that yeah. we do. Say, <laughs> sounds like they're having fun at least. <laughs> yeah, they they we have a our youngest is a barker apparently. Ah, <laughs> I mean he's just whatever. <clears throat> That's all right. No worries. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, we'll keep moving on here. That was uh, quite uh, quite interesting. Um, so I you I, you know you kind of gave me a little uh, uh, preview that maybe you don't have as much to respond here, but I just thought I would draw a connection to a previous guest, uh, Samantha Miller, who wrote on John Chrysostom. Uh, she wrote a little bit about the devil. So we've had some devil talk here, uh, but she wrote a lot about the stoic influences on Chrysostom uh, and his uh, the, the phrase, what is up to us uh, and the nomic will. And so she, she also traces the stoic route, which Ben does uh, for Maximus. It just, it just struck me that well, we might ask uh, to what extent is Chrysostom being read by Maximus uh, because that was not really part of your uh, part of your, yeah. you know, I think you said maybe one or two footnotes, just curiosity. I mean, as I also said, I mean, sometimes with these things, it's hard to figure out, okay, what are we going to call sort of um, something that he's read or that he's influenced by and what's just sort of in the water? Like what is just like right. you know, these phrases uh, that just recur and it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, you know, uh, uh, Maximus was reading Chrysostom or they were reading the same Stoics. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe it's just a phrase. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so feel free no, to respond quickly. And... You're fine. So I, I, was, I was actually just kind of digging around looking for the footnotes where I do mention Chrysostom. <laughs> I've got one at least that I found on page 42 just now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, right, like how or whether Maximus read Chrysostom. Um, mm. I, I, I couldn't find explicit citation or explicit reference. And I didn't find any um, other literature that had connected Maximus with Chrysostom uh, in my own research. So that is one of those unexplored avenues for the time being. But as far as the th stuff about the Stoicism is concerned, absolutely. I mean, Stoicism, I, it, when... This somewhere in those first couple of centuries of Christianity, we get this um, uh, synthesis of of um, Platonism with yeah. Stoicism into this Neoplatonic system, um, and Plotinus, right? If I'm remembering this yeah. correctly, um, and it just from there it just gets into the water. And it's, it shows up everywhere from there on out. Um, the, and it's an important, essential framework for early Christians when they're thinking about moral responsibility and culpability. Because, I mean, the Stoics give 
us this great language of thinking about the realm of responsibility in this category of, uh, right, what is up to us. Talapemian, or uh, however, you, your Greek is probably better pronunciation-wise, at least, than mine, right? Um, but what is up to us, right, in, in yeah. the Stoic tradition? Um, and it's it's everywhere. I'm, I'm not surprised to see that it's reflected in, in Chrysostom, yeah. um, because Christians are always worried about the realm of moral responsibility uh, because they're concerned about pursuing the good. Um, And the Stoics really did, you know, even if the Platonists said that they did it in an inconsistent and um, untenable way, um, the Stoics really did give the Western traditions, uh, Christian tradition at least, uh, a language to speak about moral responsibility Right. And so Chrysostom well, and, and, and Maximus together there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an interesting point because we've had – I've had a few guests. I had Hans Bersma on talking a little bit about Christian Platonism and uh, Philip Carey talking a little bit about the influences of uh, Platonic thought. But you know, we tend to call it that, Platonic thought, Neoplatonic thought, um, and it can be easily overlooked what you just said, this degree of synthesis that there actually was among the schools. Like Augustine is aware that there are different Platonic schools and – or excuse me, different philosophical schools, and he will kind of uh, – you, know, you tend to get a hierarchy of essentially uh, the academy uh, and then the lyceum and then – uh, and then Stoicism, the Stoa, and then Epicurus. Uh, yeah, right. And, right. And, and that you know, you, you find the hierarchy. Like these are the gradations. These are the good ones. These are the bad ones. But what tends to happen is the parts that they that they find useful. I mean, even Augustine seems to have Stoic categories for the way he understands cognition um, and language. Um, you know, he's he manipulates them to some degree, but it's there. Yeah, they're all, uh, I mean, they're so, all plundering Egypt, so to speak, I guess, right? That they're all just sort of like borrowing whatever they can find that's useful. But there's also, for Maximus, um, I steered clear, uh, at least in large part, of citing any like purely philosophical sources, because um, there is also this kind of tendency, especially, I mean, I see it actually in Maximus's corpus, moments where he'll talk about the outside philosophers and he describes them pretty critically when he's using that kind of language. Um, he, he, in some cases is not even aware, it seems, I guess, uh, of some of the pagan sources, maybe for some of the ideas that he's using. Cause he, on the one hand, like if a Christian says it, he kind of tends to trust it. But if it comes from a pagan source, he's a little bit more skeptical about it right from the start. Well, I don't know about that. You know, it comes from these outside philosophers. Um, So, you know, I don't even, right, he wouldn't have even had that distinction between, well, the only distinction he would have had here would have been between Christian and non-Christian. Uh, and not between like theologians and philosophers, right? Oh, right, right, right. Um, and that's the hardest part for us, I think. Well, in many time ways, it's hard for me to conceive of it that way. But yeah, he, he's not interested in, um, he doesn't see these sorts of bifurcations of 
uh, of knowledge into the natural and the supernatural. Um, and that's yeah. like, uh, that is a, a repeat of the same thing I said earlier about uh, virtue being natural and the human person yeah. being oriented toward the divine naturally. All of that is of a piece, right? He doesn't, yeah. So there's no philosophy for him apart from theology. Very good. Um, all right. Well, uh, one of the other things, now this is a little bit more interpretive and uh, I, it was just something like that I've been struck uh, with before, but um, is is this uh, notion in the patristic sources that whatever human affectivity or, you know, we sort of called it emotionality a little bit, and maybe those are slightly different. And actually, this might be the place where they become a little bit different. You know, we're very comfortable uh, in in the West or and in modernity with talking about like the head being the place where one thinks and the heart being the place where one feels. Um, and I, you know, I remember even growing up, like one of the, my sort of spiritual mentors would help me, you know, think through, he's like, well, you're very heady, uh, but you need to make it, you know, you know, you know, heartfelt, uh, faith, um, not just head faith. Um, and that was something that we sort of worked through and it was just very clear. Um, you think and reason with your head and you feel with your heart. Uh, yeah. and for Maximus, as for many of these, uh, patristic sources, uh, those are happening in the same place, it seems. Um, and, you know, you can't you can't just, you know, and nowadays I wonder if we just let the heart run free, sort of. Um, and that <laughs> and that's like, you know, whatever comes from there is good. And you should almost be suspect of what comes from yeah. your head. I, maybe this is yeah. the influence of Freud. I don't know. This is some sort of ego, super ego kind of thing. Yeah. I, I'm not really sure. I d uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, I, when I think of like modern... Uh, I was kind of when Inside Out came out. Do you know that movie? Have you ever seen that one? Uh -uh. It's one of those Pixar movies. Uh, oh, it's uh -huh. it's like a child. It's the inside uh, in, uh, mental life of a, like a, a young child. Um, okay. And yeah, I mean, it does some interesting things. It, it definitely recognizes the need for discernment of our uh, affectivity emotionality, whatever you want to say here. I'm not sure how to distinguish those right still. <laughs> uh, but um, in the film too, right? Like all of the emotions that the child has are p good, right? That they're, it's actually, you know, they're, they're, there's like anger and there's sadness and there's happiness and there's joy. You know, there's like different, and they name all of the emotions and they're all characters in the, in the movie. Um in that way, it's a way to what I see that film doing that is positive is helping us recognize and integrate our emotionality in a, uh, a holistic human way to say, yeah, yeah, um, that we we can't say that what it means to be human is simply to think, uh -huh. right and what it means to be human is to have this complex and sometimes deeply chaotic kind of experience of, of thought and embodiment. Right. And all of the emotions and feelings that come, come with it. Um, so yeah, the, the, the connection between those, right. It, for these patristic sources is, it's pretty important. Um, 
it, it's sometimes even hard for me to distinguish in, for instance, in some of Maximus's predecessors, what counts as a thought and what counts as an emotion. Because for, yeah. for instance, for uh, origin, what he calls logizmoi, right? These uh -huh. thoughts is what we would usually translate that as. Um, it seems to me that they have a pretty deeply affective component a lot of the time, right? That they're about like, and these thoughts to be clear, sorry for, um, for origin are often associated with demons and with mm -hmm. temptation. So that they're often things that you're not supposed to do. Um, and, uh, they, they're, yeah, they're in this deep complex of, of just humanness, right? Like we have experiences of desire that are connected with our thought patterns and, and that's, that's just what it is to be human, right? You don't, we aren't one of these things and we aren't the other thing either se separately or into like apart. We're all of it at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think maybe origins way of talking about logizmoi, these thoughts helps to recognize that the, the connection that there is between our, our thoughts and our, and our feelings. Um, and I, yeah, Maximus for him, his part too, is also, uh, yeah, he, I, I don't distinguish clearly in, in my material on Maximus, at least between uh, a temptation that is like, uh, affective or emotional on the one hand, uh, from temptations that would be sort of just, um, just thoughts or just, just, um, just an idea. Know, or yeah. Just an idea or something. Right. Um, because they're too deeply connected, I think yeah. in uh, human experience and that he recognizes that in this instance, that they're just too deeply bound to one another. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, right. I mean, I don't know where, you know, I, I haven't thought about the sort of metaphors that Maximus uses here. I'm not sure if he has a location for thought and a location for, for feeling at all. I, I, I just don't know, I guess, but yeah, I, my, my intuition, intuition would be that his, um, his distinctions would not be the ones that we use today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't really sure, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go with that other than it's just, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting and, question. I like it. Yeah. I was really struck with your conclusion because uh, you, you know, as with a lot of uh, sort of, um, you know, these studies of thinkers, uh, you know, there's not a lot of like application as it were to the present day, but you do a little bit in your conclusion uh, and, and you, you say a very provoking line to me. Uh, so this is in on 291 in the conclusion in dealing mm -hmm. with the mind as an object instead of a subject its effort to describe human behaviors may be wholly accurate, but it cannot prescribe. It can no longer tell us what we must do, what we must avoid. Oh, wait, yeah. sorry. I, I missed the line above that. Without okay. an avowed relationship with ethics, psychology ceases to aid personal discernment. So you're talking a little bit about you know, sort of modern uh, psychology and then sort of ethics and we sort of separate these things. Uh, but the, the key thing from here, me here is this, the mind is object versus the mind is subject uh, yeah. and how that plays into uh, 
in, you know, in ethics uh, being this question, not just what is the right thing to do with the dollar bill that we find on the sidewalk, uh, but but where is our life going? What what are we here for? Right, this broader, uh, truly, yeah. uh, you know, ancient conception of ethics. So yeah. uh, I just ask you to expound on that line and maybe uh, tease that out a bit. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you found that particular part of the text. It's the only moment where I mean, it was a late addition to the book, and it's something that's come up. The reason it's there is largely because of my teaching undergraduates. Uh-huh. Um, so with my undergrads, um, they they come to these issues of religion and religious discourse um, with these bifurcations between what they think of as uh, flubby-dubby, like religious thinking and uh, cold, rigid facts of science. Um, they think that, well, science is true, science is accurate, science is inerrant, so to speak, as far as it goes, at least. And perhaps yeah. even, right, that science is all, you know, for the more positivist of the students, it's all we really can know. Yeah. Um, and it's really not very much then either, if I'm, if I'm frank, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so... What ends up happening, I think, in modern psychology is this um, this transferal of that scientific reasoning into uh, human headspace, right? Like where we, we tend to want to like treat our brains as an object, right? We, we poke at them, yeah. we prod them, we, we do experiments on undergraduates about them, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's in, like, I, look, I'm not a, obviously I'm not a, a modern psychologist. I don't know anything about MRIs or any of that stuff. So all due respect, right, where it where it's due here, because there is something properly scientific about the study of the human mind and the human brain. Um, nevertheless, uh, all the way back to the Enlightenment, the problem, it seems to me, is that... Um, well, the Enlightenment thinkers tended to exclude all of that ethical space from a description of reality, right? They wanted to say, well, here are the things that are real in the world, number, right? Call it maybe, I don't know, whatever, right? Like, But it was a pretty limited set for many of them. Yeah. Um, and ethics and certainly like uh, – ethical judgments about the world were not part of it for a lot of those enlightenment thinkers. Right. So um, in order to be scientific for them meant to deny essentially the reality of ethical judgments about the world. (laughs) And so in so far as we have that sort of enlightenment mindset in much of scientific discourse today, there's a, there's oftentimes an attempt to say what I'm doing in, even in my study of the human mind and of the human brain um, is not ethical. It's not related to ethics at all because it's not mm-hmm. about, because ethics aren't part of what I'm doing. Right. There's, right. <laughs> um, it's uh, I mean, it's a, to me, that's, that's a, a carryover from the enlightenment that I, I think just simply can't be maintained. It's the problem. Right. 
it's it's the is ought problem if you want to think you know some of yep. the more technical discussions around it right um you can never get from a description of the way that things are to a description of the way that things should be right, right. you can say all of the facts about an, a thing um that you want but it never transfers into a statement well this is how it should in fact be right so we have right. instead you know we have in a lot of instances, discussions of abnormal psychology, right, in in modern discourse. But you don't say that that that's wrong, right? You know, and, and, and look, I get it. I'm, I don't want to get too far down into this because <laughs> I realize that I'm going to get myself in trouble if I say too much here, right? Because, um, well, I just mean like, um, you know, you never want to say that someone's real psychological worries and concerns are their fault or something, right? That's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, I'm just saying that um, we need to recognize that no matter what our headspace is and however we diagnose it, even scientifically, so to speak, we need to recognize that that's in the plane and in the realm of ethical discourse. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that modern psychology um, is an academic discipline just like any other. And my experience of academic disciplines is that we have a lot of ways of justifying our own uh, actions and uh, that our egos oftentimes get bound up with our research. And like we, what it's in this way that the ancient uh, monasticism, I would say, has something that modern psychology does not have, which is to say that um, these ancient religious communities uh, had, so to speak, checks and balances. They had um, mentor relationships that were explicitly ethical, <laughs> right? They were about <laughs> ethics uh, between uh, elder monks and, and novices, right? I mean, these are uh, relationships that were formed on moral formation. Right? They were built on moral yeah. formation. And they recognized that both master and student could be self-deceived, right? And that, you know, they tried to correct and work around those things in that process. Yeah. Uh, even, uh, you know, like the monks recognized, for instance, that you need to pick a good master for yourself. You can't just pick yeah. anyone, right? Yeah. So even there in the selection of your of who you're going to attach yourself to as a novice, like there's a there was concern for ethics. Yeah. Um and usually like when we think about like, you know, who am I going to pick for my dissertation director? Like in religious studies just as much as in psychology or whatever, right? Like it's about, well, who's going to help me get a job? Like, we're not worried about, yeah. like, whether they're a good person. <laughs> you know? Like, it's it's just, like, I mean, well, we should be. <laughs> don't don't yeah. get me wrong. But uh, it just, academia does not lend itself to thinking about these issues the way that um, ancient, uh, well, religious communities allow, allowed, and perhaps even today continue to allow. Um, yeah. Again, none of this is to disparage well, modern psychology. Uh, I think yeah. it, it does important and necessary things in our 
in our ethical thinking. Um, nevertheless, uh, it, it uses this language of op objectivity uh, in a way that um, I think obscures certain necessary ethical considerations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's helpful. I, you know, it's funny. One other thing that just sort of struck me, uh, even in the book, but uh, uh, when you read uh, a lot of the ancients, they really were worried about self-deception um, and worried about self-deception in ways that I don't know that we are anymore. Like, you know, I mean, I come from the show me state. Um, and so, you know, we're very like, we're very sure, uh, about things that are presented to our se uh, senses and the, and you know, the monks were not, um, and Maximus was not, um, Augustine was not, you know, and so they, they were always trying to find a way uh, in a way to recognize ways in which uh, they might be deceived and how they could figure out if they were right or wrong. Um, Absolutely. And in a way, Absolutely. and it's a, it's an interesting thing because, you know, in, in the modern world, if we, we don't, we don't tend to think of ourselves as able to be deceived in any way at all. Um, and this, the problem I mean, it's is Cartesian. Cartesian. I think it's yeah. like, right. It's the sort of Cartesian cogito ergo sum stuff, right? Like yeah. there's, if, I mean, human subjects are the only authority we have left. And I am yeah. only this particular human subject. So that's the only authority I have left to turn on, turn to. Yeah. So like, right. I mean, if we don't, if we can't trust that, then what the hell can we trust? Sorry. <laughs> you know, whatever, right? Like that's kind of yeah. like where we, but that's what, how we think right today, yeah. at least. And, and it has, it comes to do uh, along with today, the crumbling of authority structures left and right. I mean, yeah. I mean that both uh, metaphorically <laughs> and but politically yeah. as well. Right. Yeah. Um, we just, there's nothing left. We don't trust anything anymore. Um, yeah. And yeah. So I, I'm uh, some sort of recognition of um, human community yeah. as essential and human trust as essential yeah. to human existence <laughs> is something well, that we just we just don't have we, we i don't know how yeah we don't have it and i think one of the things it's one of the things that I, that i see you highlighting in the book and and as we talk too is that it actually provides another sort of interesting benefit although it might tell us that we're self deceived um, it also, you know, that and that can feel scary. It's ultimately beneficial. Um, it's ultimately saying it's okay uh, because we're here, um, and you know, and so it's it is opening yourselves up to a community in a vulnerable place. But that's the trust part is to say that we're actually here to reorient you uh, to what is real um, and to what is true and to what is good. And it, you know, I like. I worry about solipsism with language a lot of the times, like where I see our, our language is getting more and more uh, uh, anchored to us and tethered to us. And I say, you know, at some point, uh, we, we will have no more communication and we'll be essentially lonely uh, because if we only think that the only kinds of good language are language that we create, uh, well, it ultimately ends in you being uh, hopelessly alone. In a conversation uh, of one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and it's an, it's a delicate balance, uh, you know, between, I think that, the, you know, ingenuity can be good and, uh, creativity can be good, but it's always within the nexus and tethered to a community at large that can say, you may be deceived or that may not be good. And that's yeah. a positive thing because this is what, uh, this is what binds us to that group. And so that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I learned the- a lot about, yeah. Twitter right. can do that, but it doesn't do it very well because, uh, it doesn't usually only through mockery, right? And it does it without sympathy. (laughs) Um, And that's one of the unique things I think about religious community. And I'll say specifically in this case, Christianity, right? With um, uh, body of Christ. Um, It it creates the space in which we can both be sympathetic to one another Uh or with one another and also allow ourselves to, to criticize one another, right? And that's a that's something that's almost impossible to imagine in our modern society that you can actually yeah. love someone and criticize them at the same time. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, it's, and in that way, yeah, the, all of this, discourse around the demonic in the Christian tradition tries to point to that broader nexus of human uh, existence to say, wherever we try to identify the devil, we're in it together, right? Like even if the devil is inside of us, we're in this together and we can help each other uh, by uniting ourselves to the source that overcame it for us something about the title there probably of the book. <laughs> i i i am uh i think that's as good a place as any to to end the conversation well said uh <laughs> i listen to a podcast sometimes called uh, econ talk mm-hmm. uh and he, and russ roberts always ends his conversations he says my guest today has been Ben Heigerkin. Thank you for being a guest on Econ Talk. Uh, and I wanted to do that there because he's always really good at getting his guests to end on a really good note. And I think you just ended on a really good note. And I wanted to say, this has been Ben Heigerkin. Thank you for being a guest on A History of Christian Theology. But, well, thank uh, you well for done. having me again. It's been good to chat with you. Um, yeah. Blessings on all of your I'm, work, so- too. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Uh, We'll be back next week with my conversation with Danny Houck on Aquinas and Original Sin. Um, And as I said earlier, we have a few other podcasts which will be – or interviews which will be on the docket. So thanks for listening. Rate us, review us on iTunes, um, and we appreciate it. Have a good week.